0: University of California, Irvine, and um, Jennifer's work is is around issues of immigration law, criminal law and procedure, um, and constitutional law, and I think her best research really is where where she works at the intersections of these different areas of law, Uh, and it's, it's a great pleasure that border criminologists have joined with us today to present the seminar, or to deliver the seminar, and it's about immigration enforcement, which is a very interesting and and a very topical thing for for someone to be talking about. So welcome to Oxford, Jennifer, and we look forward to hearing your presentation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I want to extend special thanks to Mary Bosworth for thinking of me and inviting me, and also to Sarah and to Ian and to Carolyn for all of the support um, that you've given to me in my my effort to get here and to be here today. (laughs) Um, I I needed a lot of help. Um, So um, my presentation was vaguely titled... That was meant to keep you guessing um, and, and uh, ensure that you showed up, um, because I didn't provide enough detail to deter you. Um, but I can't put you off any longer, so now I have to tell you what I'll be talking about, um, and then you can make your decision about whether to stay or go. Um, what I want to do today is just offer an account of the state of immigration control and immigration enforcement in the United States with some attention to divergences and convergences between immigration enforcement um, and um, and emerging trends in the criminal justice system in the United States. And I think the story that I'm gonna tell today isn't a happy one, um, but it is an effort to make sense of uh, what appear at least to be conflicting developments. Um, We are entering a time when the US criminal justice system, long characterized by uh, excessive punitiveness um, and heavy reliance on incarceration, is said to be moving toward decreasing severity with a shift toward decriminalization and decarceration. At the same time, the immigration system, which has long been seen as sort of following uh, the criminal justice system on the trajectory of severity, uh, doesn't appear to be moving toward uh, toward, uh, similar decreases in severity. So these two systems that at one point appeared to be on parallel tracks, one might say, seem to be now uh, going on divergent tracks. And I want to argue that these apparent divergences between uh, criminal and enforcement uh, criminal, criminal enforcement and immigration enforcement is a little bit less than meets the eye. I think both systems are changing, um, but they're evincing um, new severity, a severity of austerity <laughs> that acknowledges the unacceptably high costs of incarceration, but that also hasn't let go of the underlying punitive logic and the urge, uh, the kind of, distinctly U.S. urge to make people pay. Um, My talk will proceed in three parts, um, where I'll sketch out some themes, um, some of which will probably require some elaboration in Q and A, but I want to try to reserve time for Q and A at the end of the talk. Um, So first I'll provide a descriptive account of the state of immigration enforcement in the United States, and this descriptive account is not meant to be exhaustive, and some of it will be old news to you, but I think it provides a useful starting point from which to consider the rest of the talk. Second, I'll discuss some recent trends in criminal justice in the United States, particularly the move away from, at least a a slight move away, and I should emphasize it's not a a huge move, but a slight move away from the endless reliance on uh, high penal sanctions in favor of some decriminalization and decarceration. (laughs) And then I'll talk about how these developments pretend not necessarily declining punitiveness, but shifts in punitiveness, where the state takes less active and visible roles, where private actors are increasingly responsible for punishment and less visibly accountable, and where punishment is not just privatized, but monetized, where people literally must pay for crime. These are new developments, not new developments, but I think they're increasingly visible in both the criminal and immigration enforcement policies in the United States. So I'll start by talking a little bit about immigration enforcement in the United States. So we have this uh, sort of foundational rhetoric about the openness of the United States to immigrants, um, and I think there is, in some senses, some truth to the underlying myth about openness. Um, But since the late 19th century, uh, exclusion provisions have been uh, just as important or more important than the rhetoric of inclusion in defining who gets to come in, who's welcome, who's uh, who's. Uh, who's uh, beckoned uh, to the shores. Um, and we've had restrictions on the basis of race, on the basis of class, nationality, ability, uh, etc. cetera. Um, so we have, and, and over time, uh, particularly since 1965, the emphasis has been on creating racially neutral um, admissions policies that still have uh, racial manifestations in their implementation. Um, the restrictions have become, I think, more noticeable uh, in recent decades, uh, in part because we have long had in the United States a large unauthorized population, but we've taken contradictory, conflicting, um, and, and, uh, and sometimes <coughs> unenthusiastic approaches to enforcing immigration law as against this unauthorized population, um, so we now have sort of an entrenched and significant unauthorized population about which there is uh, hand-wringing um, and uh, concern. Um, and so we have... Uh, and policies that are increasingly designed to draw attention to uh, the flow of unauthorized migration uh, to uh, increase uh, the securitization of the border um, and to increase interior enforcement. Um, and the rhetoric in the country uh, would suggest that uh, the nation is under uh, under siege um, and that there are floods of people that are coming across the southern border. Um, this is particularly true in light of the most recent wave of migrants coming out <coughs> from the Northern Triangle states of Central America. This, this, the language of surge was sort of uh, heard kind of routinely, the, the notion that there were people surging across the border, women and children surging across the border, overwhelming Border Patrol's resources, etc. Um, what is interesting is, of course, that border African tensions are really at historic lows um, in the United States. You can look at this period from 2004 to 2013, but you can stretch it on back The numbers that we see today in terms of border apprehensions in the U.S. are comparable to levels that haven't been seen since the 1970s. Um, So we are at a period of historic lows in terms of uh, border patrol interdictions at the border. Um, At the same time, we have substantially more border agents. Um, So the problem is not that we're detecting less. We right, are definitely detecting more. Um, in 1993, there were fewer than 5,000 border patrol agents in the United States. Now there are more than 20,000, almost all of whom were assigned to the southwestern border region. So it's, it's, well, it's well policed, but it's a long border. Um, it's 2,000 miles long. Um, in the meantime, so we have declining border apprehensions, um, significant increased presence at the border um, in terms of, uh, uh, of, of uh, military presence or Customs and Border Protection presence. Um, And in the meantime, we've had a sort of stagnation of the unauthorized population numbers. So estimates are that after growing by about 3 million people between 2000 and 2013, net unauthorized migration is currently at around zero. In fact, there's some outflow. According to the Pew Hispanic Center, the estimated number of authorized Unauthorized migrants in the United States peaked around 2006 <laughs> at about 12.2 million. And it's since fallen a bit um, to, they estimate, around 11.3 million. These numbers are obviously tricky. It's difficult to get a, a good head count of the unauthorized population, but uh, the Pew Hispanic Center has the best methodologies for determining these things. And, and they say the numbers are down. Formal deportations, however, remain at historic highs, which obviously means that people who have been in the interior for some time are feeling some of the effects of this increased, uh, of this increased enforcement. Um, so If you look here, you can see that uh, about eighty percent of deportations are actually taking place at the border, so these are formal removals, and in the past, those individuals who are being formally removed at the border probably would have been processed. Um, in, a pro- in a policy that disparagingly was called in kind of the 2000 period uh, by President Bush and others, the catch and release policy—that is, somebody comes and they are sort of informally turned back at the border um, and then uh, live to try again, right? Uh, to try again to, to return. Um, and uh, President Bush uh, made a fairly high profiled um, attempt to end catch and release, and for his administration, that meant putting individuals who would have been informally turned away at the border into formal immigration procedures. Um, so we had uh, the beginning of a huge increase um, in the number of people um, who uh, are being formally removed at the border. Um, so you can see, you can't really see in this uh, graph here much of an increase because a lot of it happened in the early, er- early days of the Bush administration. Um, but there are significant increases in the, uh, in the number of interior, uh, of uh, border uh, formal removals. About 80,000 a year of these come from not the border but from the interior. Um, And as you can imagine, many of these involve long-time residents. Some of them would be lawful permanent residents or people with other authorized immigration status who have committed some sort of a violation, either criminal or technical, that renders them no longer eligible to remain. Um, Others would be unauthorized migrants who have been in the United States for substantial periods of time um, and are being removed uh, because they lack authorization, perhaps for other reasons as well. Um, And since 1996, the laws of the United States have, have Uh, expanded to require removal and permanent uh, bars on return for a significant swath of individuals who have criminal convictions. The 1996 law expanded a category of crimes called aggravated felonies uh, to include, uh, as some have noted, ironically, uh, misdemeanors that are not particularly aggravated at all, so long as the criminal penalty can run for a year or more and uh, in those cases, individuals can be uh, expelled on the basis of the aggravated felony and permanently barred from return on the basis of the aggravated felony. Um, so this and it operates retroactively from 1996. So individuals who had criminal convictions from 1986 that perhaps were not a, deportable in 1986 are deportable now under the terms of the 96 law, so if they're caught up now regardless of length of stay, regardless of equities, if they lack immigration status and have an aggravated felony, there's very little discretion in the system uh, that would prevent their removal. Um, so we have, a lot of, we have a lot of removal happening from within the country too, including individuals who have been here for quite some time. Um, we also see, and you can see from this chart, kind of the expansion of the, the blue line there, the kind of thick blue line. Um, that's the expansion in the use of uh, criminal Prosecutions of immigration crimes. So, this differs from formal removal proceedings. It's not a civil proceeding with a removal order. This is actual prosecution for illegal entry, which is a misdemeanor, or felony reentry. Um, and then there are a few other immigration crimes that constitute a tiny, tiny fraction of that, including human trafficking violations, smuggling violations, et cetera. Uh, most of these cr- uh, crimes, though, or criminal charges, um, are, almost all of them, are for um, misdemeanor illegal entry uh, and for felony reentry. So we're using the criminal justice system as sort of an adjunct to the typical administrative system in, uh, in formally removing people. And a lot of this also happens at the border. So the bulk of these criminal prosecutions actually happen in the southwestern border region, (coughs) uh, in places like the federal courts in Arizona, West Texas, East Texas, uh, where individuals are charged um, in proceedings that I'll talk a bit more about. The bottom line is uh, spending on enforcement seems to know no budgetary constraints um, in the United States. In its 2013 report, the Migration Policy Institute said that that's tiny. so uh, spending for for the federal government's two main immigration enforcement agencies, CBP and ICE, And its primary enforcement technology innovation, the U.S. visit program, uh, surpassed $17.9 billion in fiscal year 2014. That's 15 times the level of spending of of the INS, uh, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, in 1986. So we've had a pretty substantial expansion in that budget. Um, And the Migration Policy Institute finds that in the 26 years between IRCA, the Immigration and uh, Reform and Control Act, and now uh, we've spent an, esti- uh, an adjusted $219.1 billion on immigration enforcement. So that's a lot of money on enforcement, and I should add, because I think it's sometimes uh, invisible, it's a lot of middle class jobs um, in uh, in the southwestern border region, uh, which may explain some of the appeal. Um, Note that we're only talking about federal spending here, these are federal dollars, and we're only talking about the Department of Homeland Security spending here. So Department of Homeland Security spending doesn't include the spending that's done on magistrates, prosecutors in the southwestern border region for criminal prosecutions um, or for criminal sentences. Um, and it doesn't include the increasing uh, money that states are spending, particularly restriction of states like Arizona, on law enforcement that is a sort of indirect form of immigration enforcement. Um, So we are doing a lot of enforcement um, and there's no real sign of abatement. Uh, Congress continues to fund enforcement at levels that exceed the President's request, unlike every other area of the budget, when the President asks for money for enforcement, he gets more than he wants um, for border enforcement every year. Um, Reform proposals that we've seen, um, which seem to be sort of stagnating at this point in time, uh, focus the majority of resources not onto legalization, judicial process, or integration strategies, um, but on enforcement. So then one question we might ask is, is it working Is that $219 billion well spent? And I think that's hard to say, in part because it's really hard to know what the goal is. If you listen to uh, some on the right, uh, the goal appears to be zero, uh, illegal immigration, in which case we're not there yet and we need to spend several billion dollars more, presumably, um, and, uh, and others would say that this has achieved some goal um, in terms of deterrence. Many scholars, including Douglas Massey at Princeton and Wayne Cornelius at UCSD, have used longitudinal, longitudinal surveys of migrants um, to, to conclude that migrants are little impacted by these policies, that this is not sort of what drives their migration uh, decisions instead. What drives uh, their decisions to migrate or not migrate uh, is work, um, and we have here um, migrants in uh, the California strawberry fields, uh, which my kids and I will see it you know, almost every time that we're driving down the California freeways near our home. Um, the A huge percentage uh, of California farm workers are undocumented. This is a, a known fact um, and an <coughs> accepted fact um, so uh, so people continue to come for work um, and continue to live here for work. On the other hand the massive show of force, the militarized border, the high profile raids of homes and workplaces, the anti-immigrant bravado of certain state and local actors and the resulting churn of migrants through uh, criminal courts, prisons, detention centers and deportation proceedings clearly has some effects. Um, scholars are already beginning to document the visible effects on families and children within the country that have been destabilized by the new severity turn. But what of deterrence? Um, Undoubtedly, this strategy deters some would-be migrants, those perhaps on the margins. Uh, Peter Andreas has noted that it certainly drives up the cost of migration for those who do come, rendering incoming migrants more indebted and more vulnerable to exploitation and manipulation by criminal organizations in crossing and by employers when they arrive. It's also largely ended the circular patterns of migration to the United States. Um, So prior to the border buildups of the mid-90s and the heavy enforcement that we've seen more recently, people came uh, in season. They worked in places like farms and uh, farms in California, ranches in Texas, and they generally returned home at the end of the season. Uh, You don't do that when your presence is partially sanctioned when the border is heavily militarized. And so what we've seen is kind of an end to this pattern of circular migration. When people come, people stay. Um, And this means that they look for different kinds of work work that will support them year-round as opposed to work that will support them seasonally. Um, so moving into service sector jobs, hotels, restaurants, et cetera, moving into meatpacking, packing, and it's also why you see this sort of geographic dispersal of migration patterns, looking for work that's more permanent, um, moving away from these kind of traditional patterns. Um, it also means you see more death um, in the process of migration. One of the results of border enforcement uh, and the the policies of of, uh, strategically militarizing the border in certain places has been that the traditional points of entry, El Paso, Texas and San Diego, are now virtual no-go places. Uh, This has funneled uh, migrants to, among other places, Arizona, uh, which is why I think you see such backlash in Arizona. Um, So people are coming to different places. And coming through Arizona is much more dangerous than crossing at San Diego or El Paso, which means we've also seen it, uh, seen a completely uh, anticipatable and completely uh, un- unsurprising uh, increase in the number of border deaths uh, in recent years. Um, so hundreds of people die crossing each year uh, through the Arizona deserts. Um, so we've also, and one of the other kind of consequences of the, of the strategy has been that we see more women and more children coming in part again because we have patterns of permanent settlement as opposed to temporary settlement. So enforcement has had some effects surely, perhaps some deterrent and some unintentional effects um, that have reshaped migrant flows um, and populations. But it certainly not eliminated the unauthorized population in the United States. I think there was, particularly in the late 2000s, a heavy emphasis by some restrictionists on the notion of immigration or uh, attrition by of enforcement by attrition—the notion that if you just enforce the law harshly enough, people would leave—and um, uh, that's turned out to be largely a pipe dream. Even states that really attempt very, very harsh policies of uh, enforcement don't necessarily see the mass exodus that they would have predicted. And perhaps it's because so many unauthorized migrants have lived in the United States for years, uh, the notion that you would just up and leave is not something that uh, that, uh, that would be kind of the automatic assumption. Um, and indeed, in fact, you see uh, pushes the other way. So this is a picture of uh, one of the buses that had, was taken by undocumented students, youth, high school and college age youth, who were advocating for some form of legalization for themselves and their families. You see the sign on the side, sin paquete, sin miedo, without papers and unafraid. Um, advocating uh, for, for some kind of permanent status, right? So they were prompted to, in response to this sort of wave of harsh policies, to say we have nothing to lose, so we're sort of coming out of the shadows and we're gonna ask that we be given something. Um, and the result was that they got something, um, not legalization through congressional action, which appears, uh, appears difficult I'll talk more about that in a minute but they did get executive action um, that, that gave them lawful status um, of sorts. It's a kind of a liminal status, a nether status. It's a status that says, you will not be deported. We have your information, we know who you are. Uh, if you are picked up, you will not be deported. Your deportation is deferred. Um, you can uh, get, apply for and receive federal work authorization, which allows you to work legally. You can apply for a social security number. Um, and in most states, uh, you can get a driver's license, which has phenomenal effects on decreasing risks uh, of exposure to law enforcement. Um, so, so that's the package that they got. Um, and I'll argue that this is a sort of a decriminalization uh, that is of the kind that we're seeing in the, in the criminal sector, right? It's, it's, uh, it's not a legalization. Uh, not a full legalization. It leaves them very vulnerable uh, to uh, disparate forms of policing, uh, to kind of falling outside of DACA status. DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the shorthand is DACA. But they're vulnerable. um, And and they're monitored. Um, So they applied for this status two years ago. They're having to reapply for this status again. It's a two-year status, so they have to go back, show that they continue to be eligible um, and uh, and register again. Um, So it's a decriminalization, not a legalization. Um, that's not to say it's not been um, transformative. If you talk to youth that have received deferred action status, it is transformative. The ability to work, the ability to drive, the ability to go to school, the ability to get in some states financial aid and in-state tuition has been absolutely transformative. But it doesn't have an end game in citizenship. The president doesn't have any power to bestow a lawful permanent resident status on them. Only Congress can do that, and it hasn't, and it likely won't. So those of you who are watching U.S. midterm elections saw that the Senate moved from the Democratic column to the Republican column. The Republicans now control both houses of Congress. I don't think this has significantly significantly impacted the possibility of sensible congressional immigration reform in the United States, but that's only because there was absolutely no chance of sensible immigration reform in the United States before the election, and the election only sort of makes that seem even more so. Um, So we can sort of I guess the question we could ask is, does this mean we can expect to see a continuation of the status quo um, in the U.S.? And I think the answer, if past experience is any indication is no. What we'll see is continued ramping up of enforcement against a backdrop of incredibly harsh laws with very little room for discretion by federal actors. Um, so we'll see more people pushed into the pipeline because Congress can continue to fund enforcement even if it does nothing on the legalization front. And I assume that they will. States and localities will also shape the way these policies play out because they sometimes aid and sometimes resist in these federal enforcement practices. And sometimes they aid even more than the federal government wants. But what that means is you have sort of a patchwork of enforcement that in some ways is dictated by local conditions, not by federal law, and that will persist. And I'll talk more about that um, in a bit. Um, And I think the third kind of wildcard factor is that additional executive action might be possible and I think it's probable. I think it's probable that President Obama will expand on the deferred action program, expand the category of people who are eligible for it. It's not quite clear to me exactly who. Um, things that have been bandied about include the family members of individuals who have received DACA, for example. Um, some notion of expanding this package of people who will be, at least for the moment, um, immune from deportation, uh, if not, if not uh, granted legal status. So there are still gonna be changes. And then, of course, uh, Congress has made it very clear at least some members uh, that uh, presidential action will, uh, will engender congressional intransigence and possibly lawsuits against the president, uh, perhaps ultimately uh, culminating in uh, impeachment if you listen to some. So we'll see, we'll see what happens there. Uh, but that's Obama's problem, not mine. Um, so now I wanna kind of shift from immigration, the immigration side uh, to what's happening in criminal justice. And here I'll paint with much broader strokes, I'll assume a pretty high level of familiarity with a, a lot of what's going on, and I'll probably make some generalizations that may be uh, challengeable. So uh, so here I go. Um, so after 40 years of incredible penal expansion in the U.S., we've been told, at least, that we may be seeing an end to the severity revolution. The unprecedented locking up of U.S. citizens, a process that made us the world leader in incarceration, appears to be running out of steam, or at least money. Um, And although the federal government can print money to enforce its laws, states have budgets, and these groaning budgets have them doing things that would have been unheard of 15 years ago, (coughs) namely reducing the severity of some offenses and decriminalizing others. Sasha Natapoff in a recent piece meticulously detailed this trend in an article entitled Decriminalization that I really like. Um, She notes that numerous jurisdictions have moved to decriminalize marijuana possession, uh, if you were following election coverage, you could see that there, that was on the, uh, the, the ballot in several jurisdictions, including uh, Washington, D.C., on its most recent turn. And although marijuana decriminalization has been a particularly popular focus for decriminalization efforts, Natapoff also notes that states are experimenting with the decriminalization of other crimes, including driving with a suspended license, disturbing the peace, petty theft, and other regulatory offenses that can carry jail time. At the federal level, although there are no significant changes, nor would we expect any anytime soon, um, the Attorney General, uh, Attorney General Holder, the outgoing Attorney General, made clear that the U.S. that U.S. attorneys should be exercising <coughs> discretion against uh, when they're prosecuting low-level le- level drug crimes, um, and the ridiculous and arbitrary disparities in sentencing uh, that punish crack cocaine at 100 times the rates of of, of, of those for Uh, for powder cocaine, a disparity that uh, had tremendous racial significance, has been reduced to the slightly less crazy, although still arbitrary and unjustifiable, rate of 17 to 1. Um, So, in the face of these changes, we actually do see decreases in prison populations in the U.S. US. Prison populations have shrunk for four years in a row. Some states have closed prison facilities. It's unheard of for us. Um, Natakoff writes, scholars and commentators say hopeful things like there seem to be good reason to hope the war on crime may soon wind down, or mass incarceration has come to an end, or the war on drugs is over, and the US has become, quote, a more benevolent nation. But Natapop also cautions that decriminalization is not legalization, which is something that I stressed in the, in the immigration context as well. The shift from more severe to less severe sanctions is not the same as a shift from a less free to a more free society necessarily. She notes that while all this decriminalization and downsizing is happening, the penal apparatus is actually expanding. State prison populations are down, but jail populations are up. Supervisory programs like diversion, privatized probation, community supervision, GPS monitoring are all growth industries in the United States. Uh, Defendants are now on the hook, she writes, for an array of fines and fees that can require years to pay. So one um, kind of implication of decriminalization is that rather than being sentenced to jail time, you are instead fined, a process in which you have no lawyer because there's no jail time on the line in many cases. You accept the fine, and then if you can't pay the fine, the consequence ultimately can be jail time. Um, so the col- And then there are a range of collateral consequences, from employment restrictions, to housing, to education, to of course immigration that have become, she writes, a new and burdensome form of restraint and stigma. And then, of course, there's the surveillance that I mentioned before. So criminal law is everywhere, controlling access to public spaces, pressuring individuals away from contact with private actors that engage in or screen using, uh, using uh, personal data, uh, and generating a net of negative consequences in the private sphere. Um, Private actors are engaged by the government to monitor offenders who get off with monitoring sanctions. Private actors provide the drug treatment and anger management and other diversionary programs that are the hallmark of decriminalization, and they are responsible for collecting payment. Um, But ultimately, uh, it's private action backed by the state because the sanctions for failing to comply and failing to pay um, is, of course, uh, prison time. So the shift from a straight-to-prison system to a fines and monitoring with the possibility of prison system is sort of what we're seeing. And that uh, is not race or class neutral. It falls heaviest on the poorest and the most disenfranchised. Uh, pop notes that it's uh, African Americans who are most likely to quote unquote fail uh, drug diversionary programs. They're seen as non-compliant at much higher rates than whites and therefore wind up being referred back to prison. The poor are those who can't pay fines and wind up being referred back to prison. So wealthy and middle class white folk will simply pay the fines of decriminalization. Uh, it's uh, Colorado legalization I think has been a boon uh, for middle class white kids everywhere, right? Um, but the poor and the disenfranchised can't play this game in the same way and the failure to pay generates criminal consequences of its own. Even for those who can pay, the process offers exercises in continuous social control and monitoring. And Isa Kohler-Hausman's account and her analysis of misdemeanor arrests in New York is particularly instructive um, on this fact. So she notes that the stakes are low. People take take pleas um, because they are told that within a year this disappears from their record. Um, and then they don't have to deal with the, the harassments of multiple appearances that it will take to actually contest the misdemeanor charge in New York, multiple appearances they require missed time at work, uh, problems with childcare, care, etc. Um, so instead, take the plea. But once the plea is entered, the individual faces a range of perhaps unanticipated collateral consequences, often privately imposed. Um, so employers uh, will screen and see on their record this mark that will be there for the year, while the monitoring uh, continues, they're marked as misdemeaned at least temporarily um, and it does have a host of consequences. So we see the criminal justice system moving to to fulfill its core function at least with regard to low level offenses by monetizing and privatizing criminal punishment. And this happens both directly through the collection of fines and through the use of private diversion programs and indirectly through the resulting and ubiquitous private denials of housing, credit, jobs, and other benefits. Um, so we've normalized the use of private civil justice mechanisms in the administration of criminal justice um, for many, many people, because after all, 90% of criminal offenses in the US are misdemeanor offenses. They're not the felony offenses that we often focus on when we talk about things like mass incarceration. So this move has been going on for decades, but it's accelerated with a growing pressure on the states and localities to cut criminal justice costs, to impose fines to fund their own systems, etc. And it may mean less punishment for those with means, um, and those who inspire the sympathy of police and judges, but Natapop argues that it does not necessarily translate into less punishment for the poor and the marginalized. What it does mean is more diffuse, less visible, and perhaps less accountable punishment without some of the procedural protections like counsel that criminal process uh, generally provides. So that's the, that's the story on the criminal side. A decriminalization, which may not have uh, quite the, the, the effect that a legalization, that kind of mass legalization might. So I think that that means that the trends that we're seeing in immigration enforcement uh, and the trends that we're seeing in criminal justice might have more in common uh, than we think. Um, and I want to illustrate this point sort of in a roundabout way. I want to start by thinking uh, about the question, if we are decriminalizing minor offenses, um, we're converting it to fines. Uh, we are uh, having people go to diversionary programs. Won't that have the salutary effect of uh, bringing less non-citizens uh, into the criminal process and, therefore, kind of being funneled out through the removal proceedings? Um, and I want to explain why I don't think this is the case, and then I want to talk more generally about kind of what this tells us about these developments. Um, so. Let's start by thinking about how it is that the criminal justice system and the immigration system interact in the United States. So there are lots of ways. Um, But I'm gonna focus on four examples. One is the Secure Communities Program. The second is uh, the role of state criminal process in shaping immigration consequences. The third is the use of federal detainer requests to state and local jails in immigration enforcement. And the fourth is one that I've talked about but I'll uh, talk about again anew, um, which is the use of federal criminal prosecutions. All of these are ways in which the criminal justice system uh, manages migration uh, and and interacts with immigration enforcement in the U.S. So first, secure communities. Uh, This is a relatively new program. It rolled out between uh, 2011, approximately, and 2013 and it now is extended to the entire United States. It requires that whenever there's an arrest made anywhere uh, by a state or local officer, that the individual's fingerprints uh, that are, are taken during the arrest process be submitted to the Department of Homeland Security to be checked against an immigration database. This is supposed to be neutral and is supposed to assist in effective crime control. On the latter point, Cox and Miles released an empirical study Um, just a couple of weeks ago in which they conclude that it doesn't uh, really have any impact on crime control. So by looking at jurisdictions where secure communities was rolled out versus those where it had not yet been rolled out, they see no effect on uh, crime rates at all, Um, and they also uh, see that the individuals who are being removed in areas where secure communities are being rolled out are not those who are committing serious crimes. The federal data backs this up. Uh, you can see that they're not deporting serious criminals uh, at higher rates in places where they're uh, rolling out secure communities. Instead, what is happening is that unauthorized migrants with either no criminal record or minor, minor crimes are being funneled into removal through this process. They come to the attention of the federal government via arrest, and then they're deported. Um, this makes state and local governments the key entry point for federal immigration processing, and it means the state and local arrest authority is sort of the screen uh, for immigration processing. Um, One important justification of the Secure Communities Program is that it eliminates local discretion. So officers who want to uh, target non-citizens and then funnel them into deportation proceedings are stopped by this, because now it's all neutral, and it's all done by the database, and it's all done by the fingerprints. Um, But that's really not how it works at all. Um, And to see this, I think we can turn to my second example. State criminal processes in shaping immigration consequences. Um, State criminal processes either mitigate or aggravate the consequences of immigration status. And one of the best uh, kind of pieces of of work to show us how that works is Ingrid Egley's article on how non-citizens are processed through criminal justice systems. And she compares three different counties to see how they take or don't take immigration status into account as they process. And she notes that some places, like Harris County, Texas, which encompasses Houston, uh, take an alien, alienage, a purportedly alienage-neutral approach to law enforcement. So everybody's treated the same, you're arrested the same, you're processed the same, and then let the chips fall where they may in terms of the consequences. So that means that non-citizens uh, are arrested and processed in the same way as citizens and they may wind up with criminal convictions that uh, banish them for life. Uh, that's a consequence that the Harris County officials don't have any interaction with. They, they view themselves as acting in an alienage neutral way which effectively means that non-citizens wind up with harsher punishments uh, than citizens because their pleas have significant collateral consequences. Some jurisdictions take an alienage protective approach. LA County is an example of this. So they try to screen uh, by, uh, by immigration status if they can structure plea agreements in a way that can avoid uh, overly harsh immigration consequences. They do that, they take immigration status into account in structuring bail determinations, etc. cetera. Um, so it's immigrant protective and the notions to try to equalize the outputs of the criminal justice process by taking into account the ways in which alienage status might affect those outputs. And some are expressly punitive of alienage status. Maricopa County in Arizona, uh, creates crimes to target non citizens for policing, prosecutes for immigration related conduct um, like self smuggling or uh, identity theft um, in, in order to get <coughs> work, and then attempts to funnel people into the criminal justice system on the basis of their non citizen status. So it's not just at the level of prosecution where uh, where that states are shaping immigration, but it's all through the process from the kind of initial arrest decision uh, through the final outputs that they're structuring federal outcomes. Um, And it's also kind of going back to point one, noticeable that the arrest decision, which happens before we start taking into account the formal process, is what kicks off the Secure Communities Program, meaning that uh, individual police determinations about whom to arrest and police department policies about where to target their resources has a huge impact on who goes into federal removal proceedings. So we say in the United States that immigration is a congressional responsibility, that immigration is a federal charge, uh, that states have uh, no power um, to, uh, to structure immigration consequences or to deport. But effectively, the system that we've set up Really means that states and localities structure uh, the degree to which their own locality is, uh, is feeding into deportation or is uh, resisting it. Um, so, Hiroshi has concluded that, that, <coughs> that it is these localities that really have the discretion that matters um, in federal immigration policy. Federal discretion is so limited once people are in the pipeline that the initial decision is the decision that matters. Um, the third example uh, in, of the ways in which the system interact, uh, just briefly, um, is that when states and localities do arrest individuals and the federal government is alerted, sometimes the federal government makes a decision that they want to, to remove people. Um, and they've been following a practice of uh, issuing detainers. Um, and it turned out, uh, Chris Lash was kind of a leader in this, that there's no legal basis for these detainers. There's no authorization in statute, um, it, and so uh, it turns out that these were just requests all along. Uh, Which is fine, except that uh, when individuals sued states and localities saying, you've held me beyond the period for which you had probable cause to hold me, the states and localities said, oh, well, ICE requested that we held you, and judges said, well, ICE had no authority to do so, so you, state or locality, are on the hook for paying for these illegal, essentially illegal arrests and holds, right? And once that started, many states and localities decided that they were no longer going to honor these requests that apparently had no legal basis, so you're seeing a sort of slide away from it. Uh, But for a time, you had this sort of informal Arrangement uh, where states and localities were extending their arrest power um, at the kind of non-existent power of the federal government to ask them to do so um, and thereby kind of strengthening the linkage between people coming in uh, and going out through removal. And that example is interesting just because it shows that when people started to focus on the informal ways that these systems interact there sometimes isn't a legal basis uh, for the way that they've been practicing the law um, for long periods of time. Um, and the final example of the interaction is, of course, federal criminal prosecutions, which, is, uh, which I've talked about already. Um, so using criminal prosecutions to manage migration. Um, and we've done so in a couple of ways. Um, one is through the mass processing of criminal charges at the border um, through operations like Operation Streamline. Um, in these proceedings, immigrants are detained at the border, arrested at the border, Um, They're sometimes uh, held in in jails uh, for two or three days or whatever's necessary for processing. They're then brought before a judge given a federal defender who has a group of them all at once. makes a quick determination about whether anybody's got an argument in defense to the misdemeanor plea. Otherwise, they proceed en masse uh, in small groups uh, where the judge says, "Uh, do you understand that you're pleading guilty to a criminal charge? And they all still wearing their clothes from the desert. right? they all, none speaking English for the most part, um, ha- they do have translation, but they all agree that they understand the consequences of these criminal charges and these en masse plea agreements, and they take them, and then they're sentenced to time served. Um, and this happens uh, kind of routinely at the borders. So we have this churn of people who are given a criminal sentence to time served and then released with a criminal sentence. And that criminal sentence has the effect of making more, their, kind of, any further uh, crossing attempts, much more uh, uh, um, uh, problematic from a legal perspective. So the next time they return, they're guilty not of misdemeanor uh, illegal entry, but of felony reentry. Um, and a couple of years ago, we finally saw the lines cross, uh, where the number of felony reentry charges uh, exceeded the number of felony misdemeanor and, uh, entry charges. So you can see the kind of the result of having that initial mark um, and then people returning. And the felony reentry folk, really are the people that have a strong reason to return. Um, so one of the sort of ironies of, of uh, the federal reentry prosecutions is that equities that would generally lead to a lower sentence in criminal proceedings like having a loving family member or a means of supporting <laughs> oneself wind up working against defendants because they are portrayed as magnets that are likely to cause non-citizens to re-enter and thus violate the law again. So there's sort of a perverse logic uh, to the felony reentry charge. So the criminal justice system is now sort of playing an active border role um, in structuring immigration enforcement in the United States um, how much how, how long have I been going on and how much yeah, time? you've been doing 45 minutes so you can go for another 15 minutes oh, 14 okay. right. I'll, I'll, tr- I'll try to wrap it up sooner <laughs> than that so we have some time to discuss um, I think I painted a picture here of kind of heavy interaction between these systems. One thing that I want to stress, and I think my examples make it clear, is that this is all very unsystematic. Aside from the federal prosecutions and even that I'll talk about in a minute, um, there is just ad hoc sort of Uh, David Slansky characterized it as sort of ad hoc instrumentalism. You don't really know how and when these systems are going to interact. Some uh, criminal justice actors are more active in using them than others. Um, There's a bit of, more than a bit of arbitrariness. (laughs) Even in federal charging, there's been a great deal of arbitrariness. Um, It depends on where you enter, whether you're in a streamlined jurisdiction and therefore likely to get a criminal charge. Federal defenders tell me that the decisions of whether or not to prosecute individuals interdicted at the border turn heavily on things like whether the individual officer uh, engaged in some sort of physical brutality in the course of arrest, in which case they're likely not to be prosecuted because the uh, wrongdoing of the Border Patrol officer is likely to come to the fore. Um, or whether they were properly arrested, in which case prosecution is more likely. There may also be gender disparities, although um, research still remains to be done there. So uh, women less likely to get the criminal prosecutions than men. And in felony reentry, for years, sentences were wildly disparate depending on where you were actually Um, where you were actually charged. So if you were charged in a a designated fast-track area, your sentence was generally one to three years, and if you were outside of a fast-track area, um, so away from the southern border of Chicago and a few other areas, uh, then you could be in there for a good long haul and sentences look closer to seven to ten. So... a lot of arbitrariness in the system, even at the federal level, compounded by the arbitrariness of the way that different localities either attempt to protect or to expose non-citizens to the criminal process. Um, so as David Clancy says, ad hoc instrumentalism. He says, what we see is not a merger of two systems, but, quote, a manner of thinking about law and legal institutions that downplays concerns about consistency and places little stock in formal legal categories and instead sees legal rules and legal procedures simply as a set of interchangeable tools. In any given situation, faced with any given problem, officials are encouraged to use whichever tools are most effective against the person or the person's causing the problem. This way of thinking about the law is instrumental rather than formalistic and ad hoc as opposed to systematic. Um, and he says this is not something that's limited to uh, criminal and immigration law, but is particularly troubling here um, because remedies are so hard to come by. So this is, ad hoc instrumentalism, with ad hoc interactions. It's not a merger of systems, although there's a degree of interdependence. Criminal law doesn't swallow immigration law or or vice versa. Both theoretically and practically, they retain distinctive logics and domains. But different federal, state, and local government actors can leverage one system when the other doesn't seem likely to give them the result they want. And in this way, the interplay between the systems can be potent. and even if they're not merging or becoming one, they do seem to be driven by complementary rationale. Um, and so I want to think again about sort of decriminalization in the, in the, uh, in the criminal context uh, and uh, decriminalization in the immigration context. Um, when we think about decriminalization... It's important to stress, as I did before, that decriminalization is not legalization, right? So things remain forbidden. Um, this is, for those who have not uh, been to the southern borders region, particularly Southern California, these are fairly common signs uh, that are seen uh, supposedly to warn cars about the possible presence of crossing families, uh, but really I think also uh, to do what they do, um, these are the kinds of signs you usually see for crossing animals, um, and there is a, a dehumanizing quality. Uh, to the signage, um, and that's, uh, that's kind of the legalization, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the, the sort of uh, uh, the marking um, that we see continuing with regard to non-citizens in the U.S. Um, the basis for criminalization and control remain there, just as they remain uh, in the criminal justice system. We have found ways to decriminalize in the immigration con- uh, context. Uh, DACA is one, deferred action, right? We say, you're here, you're fine, uh, you, you can stay, but you don't have any status, and you're constantly under surveillance. The immigration reform bills that we've seen that do have legalization provisions also kind of have this decriminalization aspect to them because the road to citizenship is usually 15 years long with multiple checkpoints along the way. So you're not legalized instantly. What you are is given a liminal status um, that requires you to constantly touch back touch base, check in. In the same way that misdemeanor convictions in the US require that touch back, touch base, check in um, process. Even for individuals that have lived in the country for a long time, have a long record of lawful uh, existence. So we see this kind of increasing use of, uh, of liminal statuses in immigration law that sort of mirror the liminal statuses <laughs> that decriminalization creates in the context of the criminal law. These policies, <laughs> policy innovations create more opportunities For people to stay out of the system but they also keep more people under a watchful eye longer um, with harsh consequences if they fail and they also increase the public acceptance of the punishment of those who remain uh, sort of outside of the legalization possibilities Um, but wait i guess you could say could one still argue that the move toward the increasing criminalization of migration that i talked about before where we're punishing through the criminal law, uh, suggests a sort of counter logic in immigration, running counter to what we see in the criminal law domain. Um, So if you look at federal criminal prosecutions, uh, there were about 63,000 in 2012, and 40% of those were immigration violations. So the, the number of federal criminal prosecutions overall has been declining for years, the number of immigration prosecutions has gone up, and immigration prosecutions constitute the single largest set of offenses. Um, in in federal criminal law. Far more than drugs, uh, far more than violent crimes, far more than white collar crimes, the federal government is turning out immigration convictions. So you could say we're decriminalizing uh, and prosecuting less generally, but we're doing more in immigration law. Um, We're being harsher in immigration law. Uh, And I do think that's right to a certain extent. But I also wanna posit that criminalizing migrant offence, migration offenses along the border sort of aligns with what we're seeing in decriminalization. It's cheap, you can impose a criminal sentence and then sort of outsource the cost of that criminal sentence to private actors, to other countries uh, in the case of migration. Um, you've maintained the, the sort of numeric uh, application of the criminal law, um, but you do so in a way that costs less because of the u- unique characteristics of the population subject to immigration enforcement Uh, This is a a population that's been the subject of unprecedented rises uh, in criminal prosecutions, but they're not criminal prosecutions that are filling the jails or filling the prisons of the nation. So, in that way, the trends in immigration enforcement operate not in contravention to the recent decriminalization trend, but in the same direction. Criminal process is the starting point for what ultimately turns out to be a meeting out of civil penalties, uh, outsourcing of punishments. Uh, and there's a large role for private actors um, to benefit from and control this process, while the sanctions fall the heaviest, on um, the poorest, and the most marginalized. Um, so on that happy note, <laughs> I'll stop uh, <laughs> and take questions. Thank you, Jennifer, that was an excellent presentation and a very good example of how to use PowerPoint. I don't think I've ever quite got that right.